0: All right, Wrestling With Theology fans, this is Pastor Doug Minton, and we are standing in the confessional corner, finishing up the Formula of Concord's article on free will. This week, looking at paragraphs 74 to 90, the negative statements and the ending discourse on what the proper terms and expressions are that should be used when we talk about free will. We've been doing this for a month now, and it is... Time that we end this because there is so much that could be said, and people have been arguing over it for millennia. What is the proper understanding of the free will? And I pray that the last three or four weeks, as we've gone through this in the formula of Concord, have helped you. So let's get into it. We're on paragraph 74, page 533 of the Concordia of the Lutheran Confessions. Now, these Now we can see, expose, censure, and reject the following opposite dogmas and errors. So for the next few minutes, we're going to go through eight different teachings that are rejected by the Lutheran faith through the confessions, through the scriptures. First, the folly of the Stoics and Manicheans, who asserted that everything happens and must happen in this way, that a person does everything from coercion. And even in outward works, a person's will has no freedom or ability to perform, to a certain extent, outward righteousness and respectable behavior. A person cannot avoid outward sins and vices. A person's will is coerced to do outward wicked deeds, unchastity, robbery, murder, and such. All right, this is the first thing we have to get rid of is this idea that we don't have free will, that everything is done and already planned out, that it is all due to fate, that God, if he exists in this idea, has written out history like a novel and there is no deviation from the plot of the novel. So what you and I do is what God wants us to do in the first place. This gives us the idea of those who believe in the whole double predestination thing, that everything revolves around whether God chose you to be on his side or on the devil's side. And of course, the Stoics and the Manichaeans are both known for their raising up of the devil as an equal to God. All right, secondly, the error of the gross Pelagians, that the free will from its own natural powers without the Holy Spirit can turn to God and believe the gospel. The people can be obedient to God's law from the heart. And by this voluntary obedience, the heart can merit the forgiveness of sins and eternal life. We have gone through the last couple of weeks, especially, that you cannot convert yourself. You cannot come to faith in Jesus on your own. It is absolutely impossible. But the Pelagians, especially the gross Pelagians, no, no, we can do this. We can do this. God would not have given us a free will had he not wanted us to have a free will in spiritual matters. And we've gone through, and I encourage you to go back through the last three weeks of podcast episodes in the confessional corner on this, if you want to go back and look at it again. Third, the error of the papists and scholastics who have acted in a somewhat more crafty way. They have taught that a person from his own natural powers can begin to do good and to convert himself. Then, because a person is too weak to bring it to completion, the Holy Spirit comes to the aid of the good begun from a person's own natural powers. And we see that there is this idea of this spark that is still left in you of infused grace that is there to help guide you to be able to accept Jesus. You don't hear your lay catholic friends and neighbors talk about it this way that you can choose Jesus to be saved and because that's not the way they're taught you know they're taught that you need baptism but that baptism is what causes you to have this in this infused grace which we've talked about before that then allows you to be able to work out the rest of your salvation although here in the Formula of Concord, they put it the other way, that we can start it, and the Holy Spirit comes in to finish it. Typically, they teach that the Holy Spirit starts it, and we have to finish it, which is where we go into the fourth thing that we have to reject, the teaching of the synergist, who pretend that a person is not absolutely dead to good in spiritual things, but is badly wounded and half-dead. The free will is too weak to make a beginning and to convert itself to God by its own powers. It cannot be obedient to God's law from the heart. Nevertheless, when the Holy Spirit makes a beginning, calls us through the gospel, and offers us his grace, the forgiveness of sins, and eternal salvation, then the free will from its own natural powers can meet God. To a certain extent, although feebly, the will can do something toward salvation. It can help and cooperate in it and can qualify itself for it. The will can apply itself to grace, can grasp and accept it, and can believe the gospel. It can also cooperate by its own powers with the Holy Spirit in the continuation and maintenance of this work. Against this teaching, it has been shown at length above that the power known to qualify one's self for grace naturally does not come from our own natural powers, but only from the Holy Spirit's work. So this is the football analogy where the Holy Spirit gets, takes the kickoff from God from the one goal line all the way up to the one yard line of the other end zone and then you just have to put it in that one yard or they'll make it even better for you and that the holy spirit receives the kickoff at the one yard line and you have to go to the other 99 they'll go either way on it but the holy spirit makes the beginning but the rest of it is up to you which is why then you have to ask yourself if you made a decision to accept jesus how firm are you in your decision? How good of a decision was that for you? Did you really make it or were like your fingers crossed spiritually? All these doubts arise in your head when it's all about you in your salvation. Because if it were about you in your salvation in the first place, we would not need Jesus, would we? All right, number five. Likewise, we also reject the following teaching of the popes and monks. After regeneration, a person can completely fulfill God's law in this life, and through this fulfillment of the law, he is righteous before God and merits eternal life. So here we have, this is the idea of the works of supererogation. These are the works of the saints, this merit bank That the Pope has to be able to forgive your sins, to forgive time in purgatory because of the work of the saints that have done more than what they needed to do to have their own salvation so they can give it to you. This is that idea. Number six, on the other hand, the enthusiasts should be reviewed with great seriousness and zeal. They should not be tolerated in any way in God's church. They imagine that God, without any means, without the hearing of the divine word, and without the use of the holy sacraments, draws people to himself, enlightens, justifies, and saves them. Now we think of the enthusiasts, especially as the Anabaptists, the predecessors of the Amish and the Mennonites, but also of the Quakers. But here we also have the 20th and 21st century enthusiasts that believe that, well, I can worship God out in nature. I can worship God on the golf course. I don't have to be in church. I don't have to hear his word. I can just be in his presence wherever. And yes, while that is true, you are in his presence wherever you are because God is everywhere. He is not everywhere for you, for your salvation. He is everywhere as the creator, as the sustainer, as the preserver of all of creation. But that is not for you and your salvation. That is for the world to stay holding together. Uh, Number seven, we also rebuke those who imagine that in conversion and regeneration, God creates a new heart and new person in such a way that the substance and essence of the old Adam and especially the rational soul are completely destroyed and a new essence of the soul is created out of nothing. St. Augustine clearly rebukes this error in his comments on Psalm 25, where he quotes the passage from Paul in Ephesians 4.22, Put off your old self. Augustine explains this in the following words. Lest anyone might think that the substance or essence of a person is to be laid aside, he himself explains what it is to lay aside the old man and to put on the new. When he says in the following words, Putting away lying, speak the truth. Behold, that is to put off the old man and to put on the new. So, this idea that baptism or conversion creates a completely new person, that you are no longer the sinner you used to be. Yeah. How does that work for you? I mean, I'm still the same sinner I was before I was baptized 35 years ago. But, you know, that that doesn't make my baptism invalid. That doesn't make my conversion invalid. It just simply means I am still a human being. I am still trapped in this sinful world. And I still battle my own flesh. And that is exactly what we come together when we come together to confess our sins at the beginning of the divine service that we are by nature sinful and unclean we have sinned against god in thought word and deed this is all after the fact for those in the three-year lectionary we've gone through romans 7 earlier this month we've seen paul as an apostle talking about his own struggle against sin in his own life what makes you any better than paul nothing. You and I have the same advantages as Paul. We are both baptized into Christ Jesus' death and resurrection. Finally, number eight. Likewise, the following expression should not be used without being explained. The human will before, in, and after conversion resist the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is given to those who resist him. This is that idea that has been taken from Luther's writings and from the writings of the Lutheran reformers that, yes, by nature, still as Christians, still as temples of the Holy Spirit, resist and fight against the Holy Spirit. Yes, we do. But that is not a salvation thing. That is a reality thing. That is our life. Salvation is, yes, definitely in the Holy Spirit and his indwelling in us. But we are not taken out of salvation because we fight against the Holy Spirit. Otherwise, there is no Christian church on earth. There are no Christians on earth because every single one of us fights against the Spirit. Again, we go back to Romans chapter 7, as we've seen earlier this month in the lectionary. Or we pick up in paragraph 83. The preceding explanation makes this matter clear. Where a no change at all in the intellect, will, and heart happens through the Holy Spirit to what is good, and b a person does not at all believe the promise and is not made fit by God for grace but entirely resists the word, there no conversion takes place or can exist. For conversion is the kind of change through the Holy Spirit's work in a person's intellect, will, and heart that by the Holy Spirit's work a person can receive the offered grace. Indeed, all those who stubbornly and persistently resist the Holy Spirit's works and movements which take place through the word, do not receive, but grieve and lose the Holy Spirit. Here it sounds like I'm contradicting what I just said, but the words you have to look at there are stubbornly and persistently. Those who go out of their way to go against the Holy Spirit and his works. And we've seen this in pride month every year and it seems to get worse and worse every year especially when we get to churches who are talking about how we need to embrace this culture how we need to embrace this sin as being acceptable because well otherwise you are resisting the holy spirit the holy spirit is moving through these people the holy spirit yes moves through sinners but moves through repentant sinners, not stubborn, not persistent sinners, not outspoken against everything that is good and right in the word of God, but those who willingly submit themselves, or at least give the attempt to submit themselves to the Holy Spirit, even with the fightings internally. All right, so now we get into more terms and expressions as we get into paragraph 84. There still remains, also in the regenerate, a rebelliousness of which the Scripture speaks. The desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, Galatians 5.17. Also of the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul, 1 Peter 2.11. And in my members, another law wages war against the law of my mind, Romans 7.23. The person who is not regenerate resists God altogether and is entirely a servant of sin, John 8.34, Romans 6.16. The regenerate person, however, delights in God's law after the inward man, but nevertheless sees in the members of his body the law of sin, which wars against the law of the mind. So he serves God's law with his mind, but the law of sin with his flesh. Romans 7.25 In this way, the correct opinion can and should be thoroughly, clearly, and definitively explained and taught. Just as I have said, the person who is not regenerate resists everything about God and is entirely a servant of sin. The regenerate person, the one who has been converted, the one who has been baptized and washed clean of their sins, has the Holy Spirit in them battling against the desires of the flesh. And we have this again and again throughout our life. Chrysostom and Basil have said, God draws, but he draws the willing. Only be willing, and God will anticipate you. Likewise, the scholastics and papists have said, In conversion, the will of man is not idle, but affects something. These expressions have been raised to confirm the natural free will in a person's conversion against the teaching about God's grace. It is clear from the explanation presented earlier that they are not in harmony with the form of sound doctrine, but contrary to it. Therefore, they ought to be avoided when they speak about conversion to God. This idea that God draws, but he only draws the willing, we've talked about that previously as God purposely draws the unwilling. And so we do stubbornly rebel against God because that is what our nature does. That is what our flesh does. But that does not prove that we can also choose God. No, we only go against it, as God says, both before and after the flood in Genesis. The conversion of our corrupt will, which is nothing other than restoring it back to life from spiritual death, is only and solely God's work, just as the restoration of life and the resurrection of the body must also be credited to God alone. This has been fully set forth above and proved by clear testimonies of the Holy Scriptures. So I encourage you to go back to the last three weeks of our talking about this and see those scriptures laid out again. In conversion, God changes stubborn and unwilling people into willing people through the drawing of the Holy Spirit. After such conversion, in the daily exercise of repentance, a person's regenerate will is not idle, but also cooperates in all the Holy Spirit's works that he does through us. How this happens has already been explained well enough above. Yes, God changes stubborn and unwilling people into willing people through the Holy Spirit. Luther says about conversion that a person is purely passive. This means a person does nothing at all toward conversion, but only undergoes what God works in him. Luther does not mean that conversion takes place without the preaching and hearing of God's word, nor does he mean that in conversion no new emotion whatever is awakened in us by the Holy Spirit and no spiritual operation begun. But he means that a person by himself or from his natural powers cannot do anything or help toward his conversion. Conversion is not only in part, but totally in act, gift, present, and work of the Holy Spirit alone. He accomplishes and does it by his power and might, through the word, in a person's intellect, will, and heart, while the person does or works nothing, but only undergoes it. It is not like a figure cut into stone or a seal impressed into wax which knows nothing about it, which neither sees nor wills it. Rather, it happens the way that has just been described and explained. The young people in the schools have also been greatly confused about the doctrine of the three efficient causes of the conversion of an unregenerate person to God. They are confused about the way the three causes, that is, God's word preached and heard, the Holy Spirit, and the human will come together. It is again clear from the Explanation presented above that conversion to God is a work of God, the Holy Spirit, alone. He is the true master who alone works this in us. For this he uses the teaching and hearing of his holy word as his ordinary means and instrument. The intellect and will of an unregenerate person are nothing other than what needs to be converted. For they are the intellect and will of a spiritually dead person in whom the Holy Spirit works conversion and renewal. A person's will that is to be converted does nothing toward this work, but undergoes God's work in him alone until he is regenerated. Then that person works with the Holy Spirit to do what is pleasing to God and other good works that follow in the way and to the extent fully set forth above. This is where the rubber really meets the road for especially decision theology. Is that, yes, the human will works with the Holy Spirit after conversion to do the good works that God has prepared beforehand for us to do. But people want to put that into justification as well, and not just sanctification, not just the life of holiness. This is where the big problem is. This is where we have the wrestling with the theology around us, especially from our evangelical neighbors that say, no, 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 you have to make yourself ready for God. No, 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 you don't have to make yourself ready for God. Because if God was waiting for us to make ourselves ready, we wouldn't be having this discussion because Jesus would not have come yet. Jesus would not be here offering us conversion. We would still be waiting and trying to make ourselves better so that God would come and see us. And that puts us in the camp of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, those who are seeking to do the law perfectly so that God will come among us as a joyous thing and not as something that is to be feared and revered in his mysterious ways. And that is where we end with the doctrine of free will in the formula of Concord. Yes, it has taken us a month to do it, but it has been a very proficient and efficient use of our time because we need to understand this because this is one of the core basics. After original sin, which was article one. We need to understand this so that we can not only understand our own conversion, but also help talk to others, to help in dialogue with those who have different viewpoints so that we can see, okay, this is where you land on the spectrum on free will. Are you Which one of the eight things that we have to reject are you falling into? We need to understand this so that we can better equip ourselves and others to battle against the theologies that is in them and in the world around us, even taught from pulpits. That's it for this week. I am Pastor Doug Minton thanking you for being here, for standing in the confessional corner with me, and learning more about free will, especially as we look at conversion and God's great gift therein which is the basis for the strength that we have to wrestle with the theologies around us. Amen.